I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and it's such a pleasure to be joined today by Melissa Chadburn. Her writing has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times Book Review, and many other publications. Her extensive reporting on the child welfare system appears in the Netflix docuseries, The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez. She's a PhD candidate in creative writing at USC and lives in greater Los Angeles. And her debut novel is called A Tiny Upward Shove. Welcome, Melissa. Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So in your author bio, this is a, this is always the best way to start. You have reported on the child welfare system, and it appears that your reporting has really informed your novel. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this novel has just been such a, a long project. It's uh a lifelong project really, but so while I was um, working on it, I uh, was also reporting towards the end, I was reporting on this particularly harrowing case in LA County and um, uh, right sort of at the end of the case it, and it became this Netflix docu-series. And I just remember sitting in the um, courtroom at the end when, um, the parents were sentenced in that case and it really made me trouble my ideas of like justice and mercy and um i do write you know nonfiction. i write journalism i write fiction and um whenever i set out to write a narrative i'm like what's the best container for that mm -hmm. story you know and in this case, I wanted to tell the whole story of a whole life, and I felt like fiction allowed me to do that in a way that I wasn't able to do that with her straight reporting, you know, or kind of confined to both sideism and objectivism and all these other ideas and with reporting where we're not 
so so limited with fiction. You can tell the story you want to. Yes. No one has a business like yours with all its strengths and challenges. To succeed, you need a hiring partner that adapts to your needs. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform for where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find greater talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. Indeed does the hard work for you. When you pay to post a job, Instant Match shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash Maris. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash Maris. Indeed.com slash Maris. Terms and conditions apply. Pay per qualified applicant not available for all users. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And you get to have a supernatural element. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I mean, yeah, I just, um, that allowed me to enter other people's minds and memories and have multiple memories and points of view in a way. And for me, that, um, that was like a tool towards empathy a way for people to build empathy in their care through these other folks and these other characters by having access to their memories. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about the lore of the, and, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing this, Aswang? Aswang, yeah. Yeah. So the Aswang is, um, I just love the Aswang. I think that she's so badass, but um, she, is a figure sort of born out of colonialism um and depending on who you ask like somebody might tell you that she's a vampire or a shapeshifter or like a werewoman um and uh so you know but truly she is a figure born out of colonialism in that um this is a matriarchy in a space where women had a lot of power and um, uh, healing practices and um, sexual prowess. And um, I just felt like uh, I wanted to just capture women's strength. And um, it it seemed like the, the best way to bestow either revenge or mercy and to kind of personify what it is that I consider to be justice um, would be by way of the Aswang. I mean, even today though, there are folks who um, 
really truly believe in Aswang. You know, you can read in Filipino Inquirer and Philippine Inquirer like, oh, this uh, alleged Aswang was murdered. Um, so, you know, I think that some people really subscribe to the concept of Aswang, but I think that perhaps we all have our inner Aswang. Love that. And, um, and through the Aswang, you get to really portray this intergenerational, I don't even want to say trauma. At one point you say in the narrative that um, Marina's lineage is a battlefield. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about that and how the Aswang is able to piece it all together. I don't know. I guess <laughs> it's so funny. I'm such a, I've been in edits on this book for so long that I'm almost a different person than the <laughs> one who started it, you know, and I, in that, like, I, um, I've entered this new phase of life, you know, like, I, <laughs> um, and uh, I remember, like, kind of a couple years ago, being, like, at having access to this emotion that I wasn't familiar with at all. I was like, what is that? And um, it was rage, like, intense rage and I was like this is one um sort of it feels like ancient like it feels like like something that I have had access to from generations past and um it feels exciting too like I don't feel like I've had access to this kind of rage in a long time but it also feels like a so um so I guess in that sense like uh, yeah, the the Aswang is um, intergenerational, but it's like a power that I think can be um, brought down from person to person. I think about, I've been thinking a lot about, Toni Morrison used this um, term, rememory, in reference to the um, intergenerational sort of trauma or what people have called like post-trauma of um, the genocide of black people and slavery. And I feel like um, in that sense, like, and she uses the phrase rememory as opposed to post-memory that's often used in Holocaust studies because um, there is no post, like this is an ongoingness right. to this, to, to this trauma like it, so it's it's um we're still in it sort of and uh and so I think that that in that sense like I think the Aswang figure is able to um work through there's like no post-colonialism you know I think that there it's an ongoingness still to colonialism and um I think I was also trying to exhibit the multiple breakdowns within society like our foster care system and economic violence and um, and you know the uh, and addiction and um, well I use this serial killer figure in Canada so I feel like uh, I wanted to point out these other like slow forms of killing that have got are, are current and ongoing in society. Yes, and it really struck me that. Um, you talk about this uh, serial killer, Willie Picton, who uh, is based on a real person who, who, who did these killings. Um, but you really give him 
a backstory and you really allow our gaze to linger on him. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, in the t at the time, there were like uh, multiple serial killers operating in this same area along the Lougheed Highway that runs from um, the Pacific Northwest to Canada. Um, and so I did want to call attention to that just because um, like one of the first essays that I published um, that got any attention was called The Throwaways. And it was uh, about, um, well, it was about taxes, <laughs> but it was also about the foster care system and people in the margins and people who are construed as throwaways. And so I did want to bring attention. And I think that's part of my larger project that I'm interested in, but so I do want to bring attention to that. But, um, you know, unfortunately, like the world isn't so clean in that there are like good people and bad people, you know, I mean, the truth is the most interesting story, but the truth is really complicated as is picked in. Um, so I think I was hoping to just bring a fully fleshed you know, broader uh, depiction of the, of this person. Yeah, and and you certainly don't shy away from writing about the difficult things, the explicit violence or trauma. I, I wonder if you could tell me about writing like that, the, the kind of not looking away. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also how do you, take care of yourself as you're, as you're writing this stuff? Yeah. I mean, there's so many different um, takes on this, but I, in terms of looking away or not looking away, like I, I, I always remember this time when I was um, hiking with some friends in um, Northern California and we came upon a deer with a broken leg and you know one of the people who was on the hike was like nature guy and um you know he put the deer out of her misery and um with a rock but the right right prior he was like don't look <laughs> and of course my main instinct is to look like I, I want to look like I am just of the mind that there are people out there doing terrible things all the time and I want to know about it and I want to look like I'm constantly um, engaged in that and um, and I think also because it's like who's to determine what's harm or what's um, you know uh, um, like I said, I'm always interested in like the slow forms of killing. It's like, I'd written about this a while ago. I, I wrote about this like literary grifter and everybody was like, yes, I love a grift. Everybody loves a grifter story, you know? And I was like, well, I've always written about grifters. I write about, um, you know, capitalism all the time. Like, what do you think <laughs> capitalism is? It's grifting. So, but, you know, in that respect, like I'm interested in looking at, um, these in these dark spaces but and also you know as someone who has experienced um economic violence and physical violence and sexual violence it's like I um these things happen and um 
So, you know, it just seemed very likely that these things would occur within this character's trajectory. So I, I included it. Um, in terms of self-care, um, you know, uh, I watch copious amounts of garbage television. <laughs> I love, I love reality TV. I, <laughs> um, it's particularly like the Housewives franchise. Okay. That could... <laughs> um, uh, you know, like another thing that happened during the, um, the Gabriel Fernandez uh, docu-series came out like right after the shelter in place orders were. Um, and so it was like first, all these people were talking about this thing that I care so deeply about that I was really excited about people talking about. And then we were sent to shelter in place. And, and then I was also getting all these like messages on social media about other kids who are in unsafe situations all across the country. And um, I probably, my first inclination was to just, you know, put on my cape and fly over to the place and write about this incident. And, and so in some sense, like perhaps it was um, good for me to, in terms of self-care to what, better thing to do after you you do a long project like that and it becomes public than to like you know be wrapped up in blankets and and watch tv and like lit, sit by the fireplace and like so in that sense it was um some form of self-care uh you know it's like I'm experiencing that now with the novel which is it's about to be out in the world and um but I think it's platonic ideal for me was already realized like when I held it in my hands, you know, mm -hmm. now I have to like consider what people's um, reception of it is. And, yeah. and what would be lovely is of like, I could just like be wrapped up in blankets <laughs> instead of like gonna go places and talk to people. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 when the book is no longer in your control, that's when that's when blankets come in handy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I, I I really like the story about the deer because it really I mean the title of the book, mm -hmm. a tiny upward shove, comes from a scene of of mercy. Tell me about that. Yeah. Oh, uh, the bird, the poor bird. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, the titular chapter, um, Marina, our protagonist, is in her Lola's garage, her grandmother's garage, and um, she's waiting for her mom to get ready um, to go out. And, um, and her mom, uh, comes in Mucha and comes into the garage and um, notices, uh, I was wondering what's taking Marina so long and Marina's mentioning that there's a bird that's stuck in the, um, uh, stuck in like a water heater or something. And I, and, uh, and um, she's saying, you know, the bird won't get out. And she keeps on putting her finger below the bird's feet going, you know, step up, step up, which yeah. is something that she saw um, at a, a local pet shop. Um, so uh, the, the, dog, the bird isn't coming out. And so finally, um, Marina's mother just stomps down the stairs and 
uh, sucks the bird upwards and so it'll fall down. And she said, you know, we've just done what we've always done, honey. We give it a tiny shove upwards. <laughs> she just, Marina's like devastated. Like, what did you do? She's like looking at this bird that's um, dying on the, um, and she's wondering what happened. And, and um, I don't know. I mean, again, it's, it is like that deer scene. It's like, um, there's sometimes there's only one thing to do. <laughs> it's like uh, put things on the other end of the precipice, you know. Absolutely. And tell me a little bit about writing Marina and certainly the reader is able to see that she is not living under the best of circumstances, but as a character, as a kid, um, Marina doesn't necessarily know what she doesn't know. Tell me about writing from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, well, isn't that true? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, we don't know, we don't know. Um, and uh, I mean, I, similar to Marina, you know, I, a favorite pastime of mine has always been to like, look in at people's dining rooms and just be, be like, how did they, how did they get there? Like, how did they do that? You know, um, mm -hmm. people like uh, there were always like construction sites. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles um, around the same time Marina did. And it was like in the eighties, there were all these like condos being built everywhere. Like all the apartment buildings were being taken down and these big condos were, were being built. And so there were always these construction sites and, um, and I would, play in these empty sites but then also whatever erected in their place I spent a lot of time like looking in and being like what does that look like or you know um even being in in different suburbs where their people had ho like homes like whole homes with upstairs and downstairs and <laughs> but I just remember like looking in the living rooms and um dining rooms rather and and seeing like you know there might be a piano or like a bowl of fruit or a cat. And I was just like, how did they get that? Like, how did they get there? And um, so I, I think I always knew on some level that I had lived differently from other people, but I didn't know if it was um, like, if there was a wrong or a right way. I think also Los Angeles put, put me in proximity to kids of all different classes um, because uh, I grew up really poor, but like um, the people, the kids without supervision were either really wealthy or really poor. And so we would like all kind of come together. <laughs> and um, and uh, and so I, I, didn't, I didn't have like a real clear barometer of like what's appropriate or inappropriate. Hey guys, I want to tell you about a product I'm using literally every day. I started taking AG1 because just with everything going on in my life, I am really bad about consistently taking vitamins. The best part, it doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It's kind of a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what's in this stuff? In one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. Special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, 
your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. Which is great for someone like me who's always on the go, especially with all my running. It's really important that I'm getting my daily source of vitamins. Um, but just because I'm so scatterbrained and organized chaos, I just completely forget um, unless I have something that just really makes it straightforward to get everything I need. And AG1 is lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free or gluten-free. And the best part, because while maybe I don't say I'm a healthy eater, at the same time, I really do focus on what I eat, that the fact that it contains less than one gram of sugar no GMOs, and no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good is really important to me. And the extra benefit is it supports better sleep quality and recovery. It also supports mental clarity and alertness. And that's because Athletic Greens uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. And best of all, it only costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. You're investing in all-in-one nutritional insurance. And because I said I really do care about where the things I consume come from, Athletic Greens is a climate-neutral certified company. In 2020, AG purchased carbon credits that supports projects protecting old-growth rainforest, as well as donating to organizations that help to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S., in 2020, AG donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. And right now, you can reclaim your health too and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is giving you one free year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Maris. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Maris. Take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And I do love, there are certain things that Marina goes back to, that we go back to as readers, even positive moments to kind of clutch when, when, when things get really hard. And, um, you know, we're, we're made to know many times that Marina's mother helped her use her inhaler or took her out on, how do you refer to it? It's, it sounds so fun going to different diners and toasting your own bread. At your Chasing <laughs> toast, yes. Chasing toast. And of course I understand like that lightness needs to be there, but tell me about dealing with that weight. Hmm. I mean, so, you know, I always, uh, I had a good friend um, point this out to me once, but like, I always say the crisis for Marina and then, and I'll also just say like for myself, like the crisis wasn't like entering foster care or, um, you know, losing, a brother um, or um, addiction or for me, the crisis was like a very universal one, which is that when I grew up, like I loved everyone and everything. Like I loved my mailbox, I loved my teacher, I loved the bus driver, I loved the person who worked at the liquor store. Like 
I just loved, I loved everyone, everything, and I assumed they all loved me back. And so the crisis is the day you realize that that's not true, you know. And I think um, that that's true for most folks, especially Marina. But we also often like you know have this moment, like have all this time where like our parent is a, or at least Marina did. Her parent, her mother was her superhero. You know, she mm -hmm. was just like stunning, and she loved to dance to the Bee Gees and taught her how to like kick a guy where it counts and you know taught her these police codes and like you know she was just this her world and um and then there is a point I think when uh Marina realizes she's human and of course the fact that the book takes place in the 80s and 90s um reflects on the way that the world once was, the way the system once was. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell me about writing that time and also like if anything has changed, if, um, I mean, if for the better, if, if anything has improved, because yes, things change. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, we have internet. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that was like a super, it was an important time to, um, capture. Certainly it was a really, I'll just say like, it was a really important time for the child welfare system. And, um, I wish there was a less complicated way to say this, but I will say that when, um, welfare reform occurred, um, when Bill Clinton changed uh, welfare to temporary assistance to needy families. Um, all the services that people used to get from Department of Public Social Services, they suddenly were referred to now the Department of Children and Family Services, which made um, caseloads, you know, double, triple, quadruple, and put a lot of children in harm's way. And, um, and so, uh, in that way, that really shifted our child welfare system. Um, and then there has been, and always probably has been, but even more so now, a large movement towards privatization of the child welfare system. And, um, and so I think that that is um, one thing to be wary of or to be aware of. And, um, and, uh, but in terms of overall, uh, I've, I've only engaged really super closely with the last five or six years within LA County's child welfare system. I'm doing like a close reading of these um, case files of children who have died within the child welfare system in LA County. But in the last, um, but I will say that one thing that's been pretty constant is this respect the you know the pendulum that that the system runs on which is like either when in doubt yank them out or like extreme or like a rigorous family um preservation and so i think that that's always been the trend and a pendulum and it's mostly swung by um high profile cases that have been reported upon and um and uh, so yeah i don't know about like there are some really thrilling 
long-term interventions um, that I think respond to that initial wound. You know, like whenever I'm I'm kind of in a funky mood, I'm like, what's wrong? And I have to think about like, or if I have like a larger response to something than I ought to, like if somebody cuts me off and I'm like, have a huge response. And uh, I, I will often think about like, what what's the original wound that I'm responding to here? And so in terms of the child welfare system, I think the original wound was welfare reform. And um, so a right-sized response would be something that addresses that. And right now we're seeing a lot of like um, universal basic income programs um, and guaranteed income programs that I think are super exciting for that. And hopefully that will, um, that will make some positive shift. And amidst all, so much darkness that you write about, I, I, I need, I, I feel like I need to express to listeners that this book is really funny. Um, the, the, this little section um, when Marina's Lola lists, gives a list of advice on like how, how a girl should be like, I, I felt like it was like a Filipino version of girl by Jamaica Kincaid. Mm-hmm. Tell yes. me about writing the joy. Oh yeah, uh, pork is a seasoning, right? <laughs> That's like a, a real thing. Like I remember um, I, I had told my grandmother once, like I had people coming over and I'm like, they're vegetarian grandma, don't give them any meat. And so she made um, mac and cheese and she put like cut up hot dog in it. (laughs) And I was like, Lola, there's hot dog. She says, pork is a seasoning. (laughs) That's not meat, that's pork, pork is a seasoning. um, uh, Yeah, I mean, grandmothers are great they're so fun uh I hope that this is um seen as like a love letter to Lola's everywhere um uh because they're just so neat and um uh and I and 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 scary but like funny so (laughs) (laughs) I hope that comes across absolutely and tell me a little bit about the character of Sabina and um, representing her portion of the story. So I found that there was something particularly devastating in a devastating book that, that takes place for her. Uh, I mean, what's like the most devastating sense for me uh, is like longing. I just, it's just so irreparable, you know, what do you do with this longing? And um, uh, I'm currently, I'm, I'm in my qualifying exams right now. So I'm like, but I've been doing a lot of thinking about um, unbearability and like, uh, especially as it relates to motherhood and um maternity and like the the tactile um sense of unbearability like the weight of it and um I think Sabina certainly represents that um there's (laughs) there's a song (laughs) um I'm thinking of this now because it was like in like an earlier version of my um perspectives 
uh, but I like had too much fun writing about it and I had to take it all out. But it, that Kate Bush song, um, this woman's work, it was like remade by uh, Maxwell, but um, Kate Bush's song, this woman's work, and uh, she initially wrote it for this film in the eighties. She's having a baby and like. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin Bacon is in the waiting room while uh, his wife is um, in labor and so they play the song and behind and over this montage of like this couple like laughing and playing and painting the house and this and that and the other and like the words are you know um, I think that the idea is that he has to now grow up and be a man because he's going to have this child. And also, though, the idea is that the wife is possibly not going to make it. The child is possibly not going to make it. And the wife is possibly not going to make it. And he's asking and in the song, the lines are like, make it go away. Um, And so it's like also at the same time, he's asking her to (laughs) remove the pain while she's dying of his grief (laughs) to like remove this burden from him. And so I guess, um, but the song also makes me cry all the time and I really enjoy crying sometimes. And and I'm bringing all this up because, um, because, you know, I think that Sabina sort of represents that figure of, of someone who has survived the unbearable and, wanting it to you know that whole like make it go away thing um you know I think is something that is uh it's relatable um it's also one of the original wounds I'd imagine and um and anyone who has experienced um maternal loss uh can uh, can probably vibe with her um so that's that yeah well this has been really wonderful tiny upward shove thank you melissa before we go Uh any books you'd like to recommend for us yes yes i would um well i love um love love just mentions uh school of good mothers um she in her acknowledgments also she um acknowledges betsy bartholet who is a harvard law professor um, who has uh, done a lot of work against uh, the privatization of foster care system. And so I felt like it was, but it's just such a beautiful book talking about longing and maternal longing and loss. And since I'm dissertating right now, I cannot wait to jump all the way into Disorientation by Elaine Shaw. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.